You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 89. This week, a big thank you goes out to Marcel for choosing to support the podcast on Patreon, where supporters unlock access to special Patreon-exclusive episodes. Find out more at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar. This week, it begins. And by it, I mean our episodes on the Battle of the Somme. The Somme, without a doubt, is the most recognizable battle of the entire war for anybody in the United Kingdom, probably for anyone who speaks English. This battle has been dissected, discussed, and debated for over a hundred years. And a search in the United States version of Amazon gives me over a thousand results for books on the battle. Over the next 13 episodes, yes, 13, we will be looking at the events on the banks of the Somme River, that began in the summer of 1916. Of course, the planning for this massive effort had to start months before the attack began. And in fact, it began all the way back in December 1915 at Chantilly, that fateful meeting at Chantilly that has driven so many of the events that we have discussed this year. Once again, for what I think is the third time, that is where another story begins for us. After looking at the initial plan for the attack, we will then look at the events of early 1916 and how they almost instantly began to change the plans that were on the board for the Somme. We will then talk about how the French government were preparing to play their part in the attack, a part that is so often not maybe forgotten, but definitely minimalized. We will then close out the episode by discussing how the Germans were preparing their defenses in the years leading up to 1916 on the battlefield that would eventually be attacked by the British and the French. And also we will look at their plans for defending it, more than just their structures. This is, much like our story of Verdun earlier this year, going to be a very long journey. So sit back, strap in, and prepare yourself. At Chantilly in early December, Joffre came up with a plan. 
he wanted to convince the British to attack with the French. He had done this before in 1915, but this time it was going to be different because the attack would not be two separate efforts on two separate areas of the front. Instead, it would be the British and French advancing side by side. Ideally, this would, of course, be in conjunction with efforts by the Russians and Italians as well, although that was not necessarily required. All of these attacks would be launched near the end of March 1916. Joffre did not really care the precise point of attack on the Western Front. He just wanted to make sure that the British were carrying their weight. This is why his initial proposal was for the British and French to both attack on either side of the River Somme. There was one simple reason for this. It was where the British and French areas of the front met. One thing to keep in mind, back in December 1915, and I know at this point it's going way back in time from everything else we've been discussing, but Haig had not taken over command of the British Army yet. It was still Sir John French who was running the show. While the official Chantilly Conference would end on December the 8th, conversations between Joffre and French were only in the opening stages, and they would continue for weeks and months to come. These continuing conversations can be broken down into three stages. The first was the process of Joffre and the French getting the British to firmly agree to both attack with the French and also to go along with the French plan. The next stage was then to iron out all the details. And then the final stage was to then throw away all of those details due to the attack at Verdun, and then to figure out new details that worked in the new reality. At the end of 1915, Joffre wanted the British to help him in his attack, but he was realistic and knew that the French would have to commit more men than the British. This was simply due to the fact that the British would only have four armies in France in the spring of 1916. The French would have three army groups, each of which was bigger than the entirety of the British contingent. Because of this attack, before the attack would begin in the spring, Joffre wanted the British to do two things. The first was to take over more of the line, of course, and as always, take over more of the line. This would be to give the French more reserves. He then also wanted the British to launch some diversionary attacks in Flanders earlier in the spring. The hope was that this would draw in German resources before the British and French launched the primary effort on the Somme. This was the plan that was presented to Haig a week after he took over command of the BEF. The British government was not averse to what they were hearing, and in fact they told Haig that, quote, the closest cooperation between the French and the British as a united army must be the governing policy. End quote. In fact, the British government would not greatly protest the plans that were being developed for the entirety of the winter and spring of 1916, even through the conversations about finding a solution to the war elsewhere did, that did not involve the Western Front were always something that was being discussed here and there. They were eventually committed to the Western Front. Once the British committed to the attack, to their credit, the British government would fully support it and give it everything that they had. This is important to note because after what would happen, people in all levels of the British government would try to back away from what was happening on the battlefield, since it was sort of a disaster. So what precisely had they agreed to in early 1916 before Verdun? And everything we're talking about at this moment is before Verdun. The plan was, in Haig's own words, quote, 
a decisive attack on the Somme, with the French taking the two banks. This attack will be preceded by one or two weeks with a partial attack in northern France. The relief of the 10th Army by the British is acknowledged in principle, but the date remains in question, since the relief will be accomplished successively according to the availability of British troops. End quote. So there he was talking about the attack that was going to happen, the diversionary attack in Flanders, and then also taking over more of the front. The main effort was to be on the River Somme, and would involve roughly a million men, with the British contributing 25 divisions and the French 40. This would be the largest single battle since the opening battles of the frontiers in 1914. Haig was not certain that he wanted to attack on the river, and he would in 1916, and really until the end of the war, prefer to attack in Flanders, which had the added benefit of maybe liberating the Belgian ports from the Germans that the Germans were using to launch their submarines from. In this case, though, he had a pretty good reason to not like the Somme, unlike other battlefields in other places. And that was because there was not really anything strategically significant behind the front in this area. If you do not believe me in this assessment, maybe you will believe the German army themselves, because in 1917, they would just give up the entire area when they retreated to the Hindenburg Line in the spring. One important feature of the early arguments was that if the attack completely stalled, and if it was going nowhere, the British had the option to stop their section of the attack, move their troops north to Ypres, and launch their Flanders attack that they wanted to. This was an important piece that was put into all of these early plans. And all of that was just great. The British and French had agreed to an attack, and then the Germans went and just ruined the whole party by attacking at Verdun. The first effect of Verdun was simply for Joffre to start pressuring his allies to help them by attacking the Germans anywhere that they could as soon as possible. This call for aid went out on March the 12th at an Allied conference. They all agreed that they would do everything that they could to move up their planned efforts for the summer of 1916, while also urging the French to continue to hold the line at Verdun. Just a few days later, Foch submitted his plan for the offensive that would include three entire French armies attacking along a front 50 kilometers wide. This put the total French strength for the attack at 39 divisions. With such large numbers, surely they would just overwhelm the Germans. There was just one problem, though. Already in the middle of March, many of those 39 divisions were knee-deep in the Battle of Verdun, slowly wasting away in the Meuse meat grinder. Joffre gradually had to admit that his army was unable to meet their planned obligations, and as the situation progressed, it got so grim that for months before it was launched, Joffre started to look at his upcoming offensive that he had been planning for months that had been planned as the Grand War winning offensive as just a way to help Verdun to relieve some pressure. At a conference in Paris at the end of March, the French warned the British that those 39 divisions might not be available when the time came. A month later, they definitively reduced their commitment to 30 divisions. A month later, they reduced it to 22. Before the attack was launched in July, they would be down to 11. With this drastic reduction in French contribution, the Somme offensive rapidly changed from a French-led attack to one led by the British. There were even some discussions before the end of May in French high command and in the French government 
that maybe they should pull their support completely and just focus on Verdun. This would have meant that the British would be on their own, and it was very close to being necessary. This final reduction to zero never materialized, but it came pretty close. Maybe a few more reverses at Verdun would have required those divisions for the defense. Now, Haig was not necessarily dismayed by this development. He hoped that with the French being hit so hard that the Germans were going to exhaust themselves before his troops went forward. In fact, this might all make everything easier for the British, right? In the weeks before the attack, there were even concrete intelligence reports that proved that this hope was actually a reality. Most of the German reserve divisions that were positioned behind the Somme front in the late spring had been through Verdun, and this had an obvious effect on their strength. The next way that Verdun really affected the attack on the Somme was all about when the attack would begin. While Joffre had initially envisioned an attack in March, during the planning process, this had been pushed back until August or even later to give everybody time to prepare. In early May, Joffre started asking for the start date to be moved forward, like really, really forward. Initially, it was moved forward to August the 1st, but even this seemed like an eternity. Haig and Joffre met on May the 26th. And it was at this meeting that Joffre asked for the offensive to be moved up earlier. He opened the meeting with the words, quote, To allow its allies to be prepared completely, France has resisted alone against violent enemy assaults for three months. The enemy probably sought to hinder the general offensive. It would be vain to deny that he has succeeded. End quote. Haig then began to describe all of the reasons that it would be better to wait until the middle of August to attack. In the middle of these explanations, Joffre completely lost control and began shouting at everyone who was present. He claimed that if the British did nothing until the middle of August, that it was likely that the French army would simply cease to exist. Haig calmed Joffre down and gave the suggestion of July the 1st as the new start date. Joffre agreed to this, but even with this start date set and agreed to, there were still some questions. Did that mean the beginning of the artillery preparation, or would it be when the infantry went forward? When the artillery was set to last several days, questions like this really mattered. They did eventually agree on July the 1st as the day that the infantry would go forward, there were some suggestions of moving it up to May the 27th, and this was actually agreed upon, but in the end it was pushed back again to July the 1st, which would eventually be the date that stuck. All of these conversations and waffling, and then a weather delay, which is what pushed it from May the 27th to July the 1st, is how July the 1st, 1916, became a red-letter date in British Army history. With the joint planning discussions covered, Let's talk specifically about what the French were planning for their part of the attack. Before they began to plan for 1916, they first had to look back at 1915. They had attacked a lot in 1915, but they had very little success. In their formal assessment written up by the French general staff, they said that the autumn offensives proved that in a front of an enemy infantry that is entrenched and protected by barbed wire, the infantry alone is powerless. Joffre and many of the other commanders 
seem to finally have been broken from their dreams of a great breakthrough offensive that would win the war in a week, and instead began to look at more attritional struggles. They also began to shift around their method of building up the front and of defending the areas where they did not plan to attack. This included a much greater emphasis on a defense in depth, and a strong set of trenches for their infantry to shelter in, which was a change from the more haphazard affairs of earlier in the war. They also began to try and stop holding every foot of French terrain that they had. This policy only went so far, there were certainly no large retreats. However, there were some instances of troops being withdrawn 10, 50, 100 meters to put them in better tactical positions. The final change after 1915, and then even more after Verdun started, was that they stressed that troops needed to be able to launch quick and strong counterattacks if they found themselves in any situation in which the Germans pushed them back. There was also a greatly renewed emphasis on training. To this end, Joffre took Patan out of the line and put him in command of the 2nd Army, with the mission of training up its units while they were completely behind the front. Patan was considered a very good person for this role, first because of his training skills, which were said to be some of the best in the army, but also because Joffre didn't really want him at the front after his refusal to continue the attacks in 1915. This was really just an easy out for Joffre. During the time off the line, the 2nd Army would be trained up in the new offensive and defensive doctrine, as well as generally just improving their ability as soldiers. This would be the place that they would be in when the Germans launched their attacks at Verdun, which is sort of unfortunate because the 2nd Army was going to be one of the ones that made up the French contingent in the Battle of the Somme. As it was, most of these men would be thrown into the Verdun meat grinder, so I'm not sure how much of their training could really be put to use. The final lesson learned from 1915 was that artillery, when properly utilized, could let the French capture the first few German positions very easily. Because of this, there was an increased emphasis on training up the artillery to make them as efficient as possible. As always, the winter of 1915-1916 was also used as an opportunity to stockpile ammunition, bring new artillery guns into the line, and in general just stockpile everything that would be needed for the next attack. All of this was done to facilitate the 1916 offensive that everybody knew would be coming, and ideas for what that would be had started circulating around French command as early as October 1915. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. 
I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. The attack would be under the command of General Foch, and from the start, he was not a fan of launching an attack on the Somme. From the very beginning, he would try to convince Joffre that it was not the right plan, but he would always fail. However, facing the fact of the situation, Foch made the best of it and began to draw up his plans. Gone were the days of lofty breakthrough and annihilation. Instead, Foch planned to just taking the first German defensive line and then taking the second, really just taking them one at a time. He said that it would be a, quote, sustained action involving a series of stages as close together as possible, end quote. Throughout the entire spring, with the number of men available to him constantly shrinking, every time Foch drew up a plan, it would be obsolete by the time the ink dried. The Sixth Army was always there, and was always planned to be used for the attack, but soon it would be the only one. They were under the command of General Fayol, who was an artilleryman by trade. He, would also, he was also a professor of artillery tactics before the war, so he really knew his stuff. And he also had the confidence of all of his superiors, including Joffre. They thought he was pretty good at what he was doing. He arranged his troops with one corps to the north of the river and two corps to the south. The 20th Corps, the one to the north side of the river, had the important job of sticking with the British. In the north would be where Fayol would put most of his effort. With the belief that this area, with its generally more open terrain and fewer villages, was a better area to attack into. This point of emphasis would continue, even as the number of divisions allocated to the attack continued to drop. When divisions were taken off the front, it was always from the south of the river. Fayol pushed his men to coordinate with the artillery, and continued to push his guns to be more effective. He would subscribe to the philosophy that the artillery devastates and the infantry overwhelms. When his men went forward, they would do so in small groups, using a large number of machine guns and hand grenades. The goal was never to overwhelm the Germans with numbers. All of the previous French attacks were evidence that numbers were never enough for the job. Instead, the goal was to grind the Germans down with artillery and then methodically take their positions one by one. This would hopefully save lives in the process. Verdun was putting the numbers of the French army in a new perspective. Fayol was also quite honest, both with himself and his subordinates, of what was probably in their future. In May, he would write in his diary that, quote, The approaching battle will cost 200,000 men. I wonder if there is any interest in admitting it. Attrition. Is it such that we can hope for a decisive success? I don't think so. Will it be necessary to spend another year in the trenches? Yes. And then he would write to his divisional commanders and describe his thoughts on what the upcoming battle would be like for the troops. Quote, 
it is not a matter of rushing across enemy lines, of a general assault resulting in a loss of breath because of the distance traveled, but a battle organized and directed from objective to objective, always with an exact and consequently effective artillery preparation. It is the commander who has the responsibility for determining the successive objectives. That is his principal task. Some officers have feared that this method will break the spirit of the infantry. In reality, that which breaks the spirit of the infantry is the present presence of intact defensive networks where enemy machine guns intervene on the ranks. This is why the desired goal is to destroy the enemy defenses before each and every attack. End quote. We will close out this episode by talking about the Germans. I have to start out our first discussion of the German defenders during the Battle of the Somme with this quote from A Ring of Steel by Alexander Watson. Quote, The well-established portrayal of the British and their allies underdogs on the Somme, a narrative of victimhood that still crops up in history books today, has little basis in fact. End quote. I like this quote because it's important to remember as we discuss the events over the next few months, that the Germans were massively outmanned and outgunned on the Somme. They were not some huge, strong enemy, an Ivan Drago in the face of the British Rocky Palboa. Instead, the Germans were more like David in the story, facing the allied Goliath. This gets lost in many stories of the battle, because most of them are from the English perspective, which are focused on the British. But do not forget the German troops fighting for their lives just the same as everybody else, just maybe set up a bit better by their commanders. So who were the Germans on the Somme? Here is Martin Middlebrook from his excellent first day on the Somme to explain. Quote, the German divisions on the Somme were a mixture of reserve and regular regiments, and the German policy of leaving a division in the same area indefinitely meant that most of them had been there since 1914, although some had fought in Russia in 1915. The same policy had spared them from the bitter fighting at Verdun, so that before the Somme battle, they contained a high proportion of their original pre-war soldiers, and certainly all of their officers and NCOs were experienced men. They had occupied the same sectors for months and knew every feature of the ground intimately. End quote. Although most of these troops knew the area pretty well, they were greatly outnumbered, with just seven German divisions, five to the north of the river and two to the south, this against 36 total from the British and French. They also only had a third of the artillery of the British and French combined. So how do these greatly overmatched Germans survive at all? Well, it was all about preparation. The Germans had been preparing this area of the front basically since 1914, it had been a very quiet area of the front since then, and they had taken advantage of this fact and the hard, dry, chalky soil that made for absolutely immaculate digging. Engineers were brought in and they did surveys of all of the ground, planning and designing the defenses. And then almost more importantly, they would come back periodically to inspect the work done by the infantry to make sure certain quality standards were met. What they created was far more than just a few trenches, although there were plenty of those. Instead, they were constructing far more elaborate defenses, and they just kept getting more elaborate as time went by. After the battles of 1915, a renewed effort was put into improving the defenses even more, using some of the lessons learned from those experiences. 
There was another construction boom after the Battle of Verdun started, where again the concern was that the defenses had to be upgraded to deal with new volumes of artillery and new amounts of threat. This resulted in a veritable city being created below the surface, 30 feet below in many places. There were galleries and dugouts that no artillery could touch, and they were well stocked to help the German troops withstand any attack. And these were not just isolated positions either. They were generally connected by tunnels and passageways, which were also immune to artillery. Through all of these tunnels and shelters ran telephone cables to link the front and rear areas, and many of them even had electric lights. All of this resulted in a situation that was pretty good for the German troops on the Somme front, but the obvious signs of a British buildup opposite them put new impetus into improving the defenses even further. Here's the commander of the 26th Reserve Division, which was in the line for the months before July 1st. Quote, There was feverish development of the positions, including the intermediate and second and third positions, especially the Schwaben Redoubt. The Anchor Valley obstacle was strengthened. Stop lines were constructed, as were additional communications trenches. Numerous new battery positions were constructed, ready to accommodate reinforcing batteries. Dugouts were improved, deepened, and at least seven meters of earth was put on top of them and equipped with two or three exits. End quote. The men live, living in these trenches, other than the fact that they were constantly put to work improving them, lived a pretty good life, all things considered. Even during the winter, there were generally beds, stoves, kitchens, especially in the larger shelters, and there was also large stockpiles of food, and even more importantly, new boots, socks, shirts, and other small comforts. Things were not perfect, though. There was a war going on, and they were at the front. And in some of the shelters, winter was pretty rough, with water damage and constant cold, but it was nothing like it would have been on the surface. The German defense would be commanded by General Fitz von Bello, and he and his second army had been on this front for the better part of two years. By June 1916, they had two distinct defensive positions, with a third sketched out on the map, but not currently under construction. The first line had two belts of barbed wire, each between 4.5 and 9 meters in depth. Then there were trenches in the previously mentioned underground positions. This position was strong, but it, it did have one weakness, and that was the fact that it was on the front side of the hills, and cost, consequently in full view of the British and French. This was done on purpose, though. It was not a mistake, because pre-war doctrine considered it was more important for the defender to have clear and long lines of fire against the coming attack, but now in 1916, it was a liability due to the massive increase in artillery. The German second line did not share this weakness, though, because it was on the backside of the high ground and in some places even on the next set of hills. It was an average of two miles from the British line, which meant two things. The first was that it had greatly reduced the ability of the British and French observers to see it at all. They couldn't really see it very much over most of the front. And it also made them heavily dependent on aerial observation which was something they would have, but the Germans could at least stop that. The second and final thing was that it made it difficult to hit the positions, even if they were correctly identified, because it was beyond the range of a good portion of the British and French artillery. This made the idea of attacking each position separately seem very appealing, which is what Fayol and his French planned to do. 
while the British did not choose this method, is something that we will discuss next week on why or why they didn't. Uh, It'll actually end up being fairly important. As always, I reserved the final bit of discussion about the Germans on the Somme for what they knew of the upcoming attack. The first notification the Germans had that something was going on was the changing of the fact that the British were now in front of them on the line to the north of the River Somme. They began to notice this when the artillery and machine guns started to change from French to British models. It might be difficult for an inexperienced person to tell the difference, but after months of being under fire from French guns, it was pretty quickly apparent that things were different. As the spring turned into summer, the offensive preparations became very obvious. Landwehr Lieutenant Gerster would record in his diary that, quote, The signs of a British offensive in our area increased day by day, and the first storm signals became ever clearer. That they would come was certain, only the extent of the operation was unclear. While the preparations were ongoing, the British were constantly trying to fake out the Germans to convince them that the attack was not going to fall on the Somme. The plan was to make the Germans believe that the attack was actually going to be launched by the British Third Army in the north. On this part of the front, they dug new jumping-off trenches, and at night, empty truck convoys and groups of troops were shuffled around behind the front to try and pretend that there were build-up operations. This did not seem to fool the Germans, and by the middle of June, the German leadership had a pretty good idea of what was coming. Now, they did not know exact numbers. That was always the hardest part. But they were estimating between 20 British and probably 20 French divisions, which was close enough. They also had a pretty good idea of the area of the front that would be under attack. With all of this information, General von Bello had an idea, and he circulated this idea from the early spring all the way until the end of June. This idea was for an attack on the Somme, a spoiling attack, to throw off British and French preparations. His plan involved several different phases, but the goal was to slowly push the British back all along the Somme front. Here was his reasoning in his own words. As far as timings for the two or three phases of attack were concerned, he wrote, The attack cannot begin soon enough. The British have been reinforced so strongly north of the Somme that there can hardly be any remaining doubt concerning their plans for an offensive. Whether they intend to attack in the next few days, or they are waiting for further reinforcements, or an improvement in the training of their troops cannot be determined. If we launch an attack in the next few weeks, it is entirely possible that we shall preempt the British and throw their plans into confusion. End quote. Falkenhayn never gave his permission for the preemptive attack to happen, because he simply believed that Germans did not have their resources to pull it off. He would discuss it a bit in his memoirs and say, quote, The intention to nip the preparation of the British relief attack in the bud by means of a powerful counter-thrust had to be dropped. The army reserves and troops and munitions which had been retained for this purpose were weakened considerably by the need to send forces to the east. Part of the reason for this was the fact that in June, the Germans had to send troops to help the Austrians due to the recently launched Brusilov Offensive. With the German army resigned to a strictly defensive role, it was decided that the main area of the defense should be to the north of the river, and because of this, one of the divisions to the south of the river was moved to the north side. This fact will end up being important 
and it will also make a big difference when the attack was launched because it partially explains why the gains in the south were so much greater on July the 1st. While the Germans were confident in their ability to defend and confident in their positions, they looked across the lines at the constant buildup of British and French men and material, and they could not help but be a bit nervous. The German General von Kuhl would report that, quote, the presence from horizon to horizon of observation balloons and the constant activity of the dominant Allied aircraft left them in no doubt that battle would soon be joined. The tension in the air was almost tangible, end quote. I hope you will join me next week as we take a deep dive into the British preparations for the attack.